Wow. time that the uh, Spirit moved you, and He reached into your heart and your soul, and in, in some way you were able to be relieved of those burdens, be relieved of those anxieties, because that is what He promises to do, and what He will do if we allow Him. Sometimes we don't allow Him. So, and all the church said, Amen. I believe it's time for our children's dismissal. They already went. They ran off. Wow. Okay. Such as it is. All right. So last week we tried this grand experiment of Rob running his own slides. Guess what we're going to try again this week? Rob running his own slides. So we'll see how this goes. We're going to jump right in. No story to start with. Uh, because I think we're talking about one of the most exciting stories in all of Scripture. We are talking about the book of Revelation. This is our second week in our series. Now, we opened up last week kind of talking about the basics behind it, how you would approach Revelation, maybe some different, different ways that people look at it and consider it, and there was a charge to go forth and read it. Read this book with it keeping in mind that there are symbols that matter, there are colors that matter, there are, there are references and numbers that matter, but to put them in a place that it also reminds us that the book isn't just about what was, it isn't just about what is, or what is to come, it is about all of those things, and it has application not just in the future, not just in the past, but right now. We're going to stick in chapter 1. We read through chapter 1, but we're going to stick to chapter 1, and we're going to pick up in verse 9. We're going to read through verse 9 through 20, or through 18. I didn't go into this in detail last week. I kind of just bounced off it, but I think this really sets the tone as we begin to look at the beginning of John's revelation. And how many revelations does John have? One. Thank you very much. No S's at the end of the name of the book. So if you would, let's read. We're going to read Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read verses 9 through 11 to start with. It says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus, was on an island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It was in the Spirit on the Lord's day that I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So let's talk about where John was. John was on the island of Patmos. Patmos is about 35 miles off the southwestern coast of Turkey. At the time, it was an island prison. 
was known to be a place where they sent those that they didn't have enough charges on to want to take them out or they couldn't for political reasons because it would cause too much fallout. That's important to understand. And so they would ship them off to this remote island. Now today, you could fly, take a short plane trip there, right? There are airports, if you can see them at all, they're all over the place in southern Turkey and in Greece. You could fly there in a matter of hours or even minutes. But then to be 35 miles offshore is to be in a barren wasteland. It is to be in the middle of nowhere. The island is known for its rocky cliffs. It's nearly unapproachable except for from a few places. Ironically, now it's a resort stop. It's, it's now known today as uh, the Jerusalem of the Aegean Sea because that's where it is. It's also known as the Island of the Apocalypse and the Island of the Revelation. It's also a part of a chain of islands. If you can read it down the bottom, it says Dodecanese Islands. Anybody know what a Dodecanese means? Do you know what a dodecahedron is? It's a 12-sided object. 12. Did we talk about numbers? 3, 4, 7, 12. Interesting that God would set this up in a chain of the 12 islands. This is where he would send John. And as odd as it seemed at the time, it may have been the perfect place to send John. Our text tells us that John was sent there for a reason. He was sent there because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. Because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. John was likely sent there by Domitian for one reason and one reason alone. What was that? Any guesses? Preaching the gospel. The testimony of Jesus. He was there for preaching the gospel. John was likely the last of the living apostles. And by sending him there, he, in effect, was hoping, Domitian was hoping to silence him. Now, he couldn't just kill him. Why couldn't he just kill him? Because there's a lot of these Christians running around. And if you take out one of their leaders, you're going to upset people that could make your life harder. So instead of taking him out and turning him into a martyr, you send him to prison. See, because the Jews took out Jesus, that didn't work out very well for them. The Romans have learned a little bit. He sent them there because for Domitian, the gospel is dangerous. Do you ever think of the gospel as dangerous? I don't know about you, but in my current life, I don't think of it as dangerous. It's, it's the stuff of life, right? Is it not what we are supposed to be expressing to the world because it brings life, it brings healing, it brings the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus himself, and eternal life with him. These are all good things. This is the good news, right? That's what gospel means. You know that, right? It means good news. But for Domitian, the gospel was dangerous. It was dangerous because it challenged his authority, and the gospel continues to challenge human authority. If the gospel is true, then to ignore it is to ignore the truth. 
than to have contempt for the gospel is to have contempt for the truth. Hostility toward it, if you have it, is to have hostility for the truth. And as one author says, there is nothing more dangerous to a person than to build a life on hostility to the truth because they are always at war with reality. You see our world being at war with reality sometimes? I'm reminded of the gender conversation, male and female, right? No, there's 567 options now. That's being at war with reality and angrily screaming it. And keep in mind, that's not a condemnation of those folks. Their pain is real. Their confusion is real. And as we were reading in the book of Jude today with the teens this morning, if someone is fallen away to their own desires, we're supposed to reach down and try to grab them back out. So it's not a condemnation. It's concern and it's love. Let me be very clear about that. So, what to do with John, this person who's driving them crazy? Early church tradition says that Domitian cast him, at least part of him, into a cauldron of boiling oil, burned him before he sent him off to the island, and even challenged him to drink poison, saying, oh yeah, if you're really that holy, why don't you pull the Paul thing, drink some poison and make it, right? Paul was bit by a snake that poisoned him, or should have. But it's a challenge to human authority because it requires human beings to set aside their priorities, to change their priorities. It requires a government to set aside unjust wars. It requires people to give up power. I don't know about you, but if I walked up to you today and said, hey, you need to give up power control over your life, what would you say? No, you wouldn't. We like being in charge. Did you know also that the gospel is dangerous to the church? We're not going to go through Revelations chapter 2 and 3 because those are the ones that we most often go through. If you've ever heard a series preached on Revelations, they probably stopped right after chapter 3. Because those are the easy ones. He talks about, he's going to talk about the church in Ephesus in this vision that has persevered. He gives them a a, a commendation the Lord does, or the Spirit of the Lord does, a commendation for persevering through all of their challenges. But he, he also tempers it and says, but you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You've abandoned your commitment to Jesus. Then he goes to Smyrna that is afraid. They're afraid of the reality that lies ahead. He says very clearly, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. He doesn't say what you might suffer. He says what you're about to suffer, be faithful to the point of death, he says. Right? I don't know about you, but if I see impending death coming, I have a tendency to try to avoid it, right? 
If the Mack truck is coming at me in my lane, I'm trying to find a place to go that is not into the truck, right? We avoid it, and yet he says to the people of Smyrna, suffering is coming, pain is coming. Your faith will be tested to the point of death. Stick to it. Stay with me. He's going to say in a minute, as we, we come out of this chapter, at the next section of this vision, again, we're not going to go through it, so I'm just kind of summarizing. To Pergamum, he's going to say, look, you guys are compromising the word of God. You're mixing in the traditions of other faiths. You're eating meat sacrificed to idols, and you're committing sexual immorality, he says, in Revelation 2, verse 14. To Thyatira, a similar charge saying specifically you tolerate this woman Jezebel who's leading the people of God away from the Lord. To Sardis, unlike all the others, he doesn't begin with a commendation. He begins immediately right out of the gate with this searing thing where he says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. They don't see themselves for who they are. They have a misunderstanding of reality. They're ignoring it. They want to believe they are still alive when in fact they are not. Do you want to hear that as a church ever? Then in Laodicea, he says, because you are lukewarm, right? I skipped one. We'll get back to it in a second. You are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, and I'm going to Fun words, vomit you out of my mouth. It's a pleasant scene, isn't it? It's not supposed to be. There is one, though, Philadelphia. Because you have kept my command to endure, because you've done what I've asked you to do, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come to the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Even to the church, the gospel, John's message is dangerous because it challenges the bride of Christ to live in truth above all else, to live for him above all else. It's not about their own priorities. It's not about their own focuses. It's not about their own goals. It's about recognizing that there is an impending apocalypse. It is coming. There will be a judgment. And we will all have to explain before the Lord what we have done or not done. And these are the things we don't like to think about because, quite frankly, they're scary, right? And I understand it because I'm with you too. But it doesn't make it any less true. It's also dangerous, see, slide problems. It's also dangerous because it challenges my authority over my own life. It challenges my authority over my own life. John started this phrase today with, in the affliction, the kingdom, and the endurance that are in Jesus. Great way to start, right? In the affliction with Jesus. In the kingdom, we love to think about, right? In the endurance we love to think about, but in the affliction with Jesus is a bit of a startling thing for us. Despite the fact that Jesus tells us repeatedly to count the cost, despite the fact that Jesus tells us repeatedly that 
He doesn't have a place to lay his head, right? Why would we think we would by default or that we somehow deserve it? And we discussed that word this morning too. I hate the word deserved because we use that word a lot. There's not a lot we deserve. And the stuff we do deserve is not good. He says, John says, he is there again because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This also implies that he is on Patmos because the Lord wants him there. The word of God has put him there and said, this is where you need to be in this time and in this place among the 12 islands. Maybe to keep him alive. Maybe to clear his calendar. Right? I don't know about you, but my calendar's full. I could pull it up and show you on my phone right now. I have a list of meetings, discussions. If I'm careful, I can squeeze in some Bible study time. I'm kidding. I have to squeeze that in, right? Because if I don't, I don't know what I would do with the rest of my day. When, when, when people say, well, I don't have time to study or I don't have time to pray. I don't have time not to. And I'm stealing that from somebody else. But it's true. I don't have time not to if I want to make it through my day. But, but all of us here, I'd be willing to bet your calendars are stacked full with things that are not directly of God. Does it mean they're evil? Not inherently, not necessarily. Some of them might be. But school is not evil. Jobs are not, despite what students might think. Jobs are not evil because when we sit around and do nothing, we tend to get ourselves in trouble. Sports are not evil. Now, retirees, you don't have anything to do, right? (laughs) I'm glad the sarcasm was well received. Your schedules remain very, very alarmingly busy as well. Our calendars are packed full. John, who's on the run, John, who's preaching the gospel, John, who who I'm sure holds the weight of being the last of the 12. God says, you need to go spend some time on a barren island in a prison setting because you need to clear your calendar. I really believe that. He sent John there so that he would stop long enough to listen. Because what he's about to unfold is this revelation that is beyond all comprehension. It needs his undivided attention. I was reading a quote this week. It says that Patmos, this infamous island, this place of banishment, place of punishment, place of lonely wanderings, became a place of learning, a place of seeing, and a place of understanding for John. He says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, John says he is. We're going to go to a blank one. He says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day in verse 10. And he heard a loud voice behind him like a trumpet. In the Spirit, this is different than what it means to be having the Spirit or in the Spirit in most of the New Testament. Because remember, this book has more, com- more in common with the 
Old Testament than it does with the New. In fact, this phrasing specifically is pulled out of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel. If you read Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, it says, The Spirit then lifted me up. I heard a loud rumbling sound behind me. Bless the glory of God in his place, of the Lord in his place. With the sound of living creatures' wings brushing against each other and the sound of the wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away. It left me in bitterness and in an angry spirit. And the Lord's hand was on me powerfully. John is experiencing what Ezekiel did. He has been removed from his present surroundings. He's been picked up and taken away. One might say there's been speculation he was in a trance, right? Some were speculating he left his body behind and went to see the things, you know, kind of like out of a Scrooge movie or a, right? You're going with the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. John's going with the Lord of the past, present, and future. There's not an original idea under the sun. <laughs> it would go on in Ezekiel to describe Ezekiel as this watchman, this, this man who's here to watch over the things of God and, the, and, the, the, and God's people and where they, were, where they are going where he wants them to go. And he's playing with Ezekiel in this text that some will listen and some will not. And I think he's playing with John here. Some will listen and some will not. He then goes into the Lord's day. He says in our text, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, this is different than the day of the Lord. What's the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is the day the Lord shows up and judges everybody. That's it. Right? That's the great judgment. This is the Lord's day. The day given over to God. What does that sound familiar to? The Sabbath. It seems that even John was experiencing a Sabbath in prison. He had set aside a specific day to call his Sabbath. It's a day of worship and a day of rest, and it, it calls back to the book of Genesis. And it hints very much that the Lord is restoring the world to that time that he created in the book of Genesis. It's a picture of John clearing his calendar for an entire day at least, on a regular basis. How many of you have something to do after church today? How many of you would be hard-pressed to clear your calendar for an entire day? Me too. And yet, John is clearing his calendar to make a day about nothing but the things of God. Not God and a game. Not God and a, a Sunday drive. Not God and a trip to the mall. Just God. And then it says, 
a loud voice like a trumpet. <laughs> Daryl asked me to cover my mic before I did that. Yes. And I say it that way on purpose because I want us to hear that. It is a loud voice like a trumpet that is intended to startle you. It's intended to jar us. That phrasing, like a loud trumpet, shows up over 20 times in the book of Revelation. It's intended to be the kind of sound that makes you jump and that, unfortunately for Tony, makes babies cry. It's intended to be the kind of sound that makes you feel uneasy, like you've been startled. It's the kind of sound that's intended to snap you out of whatever complacency or comfortable place you are and maybe even instill a little fear in you. It's intended to, to say that when God has a purpose... And he's made it known, and he says go, he means go. Not after you finish something, not after you've taken care of what you want to take care of or what your priorities first. He doesn't say do it later, he says do it now. He also is trying to imply that when all of these events transpire, they will come in a moment. They will come quickly. Other texts say they will come like a thief in the night, right? When he says a loud sound like a trumpet, that's intended to make you shake in your boots and say, God is here. It is unavoidable. We know he is, and we have work to do. It's funny, though, he's only able to hear this loud trumpeting voice after the Lord has him where he wants him. In a prison, on the Lord's day, when he's allowed all of those other things to be removed from him so that he can hear. There are a lot of things in our world that would like to be the loud trumpet in your life. A lot. Some of them are imposed by ourselves. Some of them come from the external, right? It's this idea that if I really want to solve a problem, if I just scream louder, more people will listen to me or they will do what I want them to do just because I yell louder. How many of you parent like that sometimes? I've been known to when my kid doesn't listen. Some, for some reason, I think volume is going to help. If you've met my kids, it just means they dig their heels in more. I don't know where they get that from. <laughs> this is a repeating theme in Revelation. That when the events come, they're going to come fast. There's not going to be time to sit and think about it. It's going to pull you and jar you out of everything you know to be true or everything you want in life and say, no, this is it. Let's go. Are you ready for that? Or would you say, I'm going to dot my I's and cross my T's. Hold on, hold on God. I got a few things I got to finish up first.
Keep going in Revelation chapter 1. It says, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A a sharp, double-edged sword came out of his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first, I am the last, and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of Hades. Amen? Come on now. This ain't baby Jesus in a major, okay? This is the Lord showing up in a way that was utterly unexpected, abrupt, and definitely jarring. We see that John, when it says that he is, let's go back to the first part, when it says that he turned to see the voice and he saw these seven gold lampstands, that's a clear call to the Old Testament. That's a clear call that John, in the middle of this prison, in the middle of this barren place, in the middle of this, the Lord's day, the Lord has called him back into his presence in the temple. That would, that's what John would have been Connected, connecting. He is in the temple. He is in the Holy of Holies. He is in the Lord's presence. This place of sacrifice, this place of communion with the Lord. I think sometimes we, we think we have to be in a place like this to be in the Lord's presence. John was not in a church building. John was not in a place that was comfortable and easy. John was not in his prayer closet. And all of those things are fabulous. All of those things are wonderful and helpful. But would we dare to consider the idea that we could be in the Lord's presence literally anywhere he called us? What's around us is irrelevant if we are with him. Reminds me of, we're studying the book of Exodus with our Bible quiz kids, and it reminds me of this story of, in Exodus chapter 3, of Moses going down the road and seeing this burning bush, right? Now, the cynical part of me says, how many bushes did the Lord have to set on fire before Moses finally noticed? If you know, you know, right? I'm a little slow sometimes. Sometimes I need some obvious reminders. And this bush is just on fire, but not being consumed. And God says to him, don't, don't, do not come closer. Remove the sandals of your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. 
holy ground in the middle of the road, throwing papers, holy ground in the middle of the road, holy ground while he's on his journey, holy ground for no other reason other than God says it is, God has called him and Moses has responded. This is a message for us to learn here. Holy ground is wherever God calls us to meet with him in spirit and in truth. In John chapter 4, Jesus has a discussion with the woman at the well, right? And he says to him, or says to her, you worship the Lord on this mountain, or she says to him, we worship the Lord on this mountain. You worship the war, war, Lord in Jerusalem where you say it's right. And he says, there's going to come a day where the location is irrelevant. What's going to matter is whether or not we're doing it in spirit and in truth. Where we are worshiping him for who he is, we are recognizing truth and reality in front of us, and we are responding as the spirit leads. Wherever he says is holy is holy. And then he says, among the lampstands was one like the son of man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. This is a reference to Daniel. Clearly to Daniel's visions in Daniel chapter 7. The son of man, but there's one key difference here. Let's, let's look at Daniel's. It says, I continued to watch in the, night, in the night visions, and suddenly one like the son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, and was escorted to him. Daniel's vision is of Jesus coming to meet with who? God the Father, the Ancient of Days. Daniel got to see what was going on in Jesus' house <laughs> as Jesus is coming to visit his father. That's crazy, right? Can you imagine that? John's vision is different. John's vision sees them as one. John's vision sees them as one. He describes him as being dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The robe is intended to remind us of a priestly garment, a garment that was covered in golden bells. You know why it was covered in golden bells? so that when the priest was coming toward the temple, it would alert the Lord of his presence and the Lord wouldn't smite him as soon as he walked through the door. Because you don't come to God, pre-Jesus, you don't come to God without an invitation. Jesus is God's permanent invitation. How much more blessed are we to have that access? But he's also the king. That's what the golden sash is about. A golden sash, this is what Spurgeon says, to declare the superiority of his service, the royalty of his person, the dignity of his state, and the glory of his reward. I love Spurgeon. This is a vision of the Lord, of Jesus Christ, not just meeting his father, but being one with his father. He is the priest, and he is the king. 
There's also a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. It says, as I kept watching, this is Daniel, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow and the hair of his head like the whitest wool. His throne was a flaming fire and its wheels were blazing fire. Back to John. The hair of his head was as white as wool, white as snow. And his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. The white hair is the pure one, the holy one, the God of ages, the ancient of days. The eyes like a fiery flame, as John describes them, are to represent judgment and purpose. Make no mistake, when Jesus shows up, it's not going to be all blue skies and rainbows and sunbeams in heaven. And I'm not usually the fire and brimstone kind of guy. But I'm telling you, there will be a judgment. He also comes with a double-edged sword. comes with a sharp, double-edged sword coming from his mouth. That's a sight. Close your eyes and put that in your head for a minute. A sharp, double-edged sword. Why is it important that it's a double-edged sword? It cuts both ways. Remember what we said. The gospel is dangerous for human authorities. But based on what John's about to say to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, it might also be dangerous for the church. Keep that in mind. We have a call on us, and that call has nothing to do with complacency. That call has nothing to do with doing what we want. That has, call has everything to do with asking, how can we expand God's kingdom? How can we put his footprint in this world? How do we serve him? It says also that his face would be shining like the sun at full strength. How many of you have ever looked at the sun at full strength? How many doctors have ever said to you, don't do that? Because you will burn your corneas, right? It doesn't end well. It's too bright for us to take in. It's too bright for us to even handle, for our meager little bodies to even process. When he says his face was shining as bright as the sun, it's like, you better be ready. This is going to be more than you could ever possibly imagine. And if you're not ready for this, it's going to hurt. Keep that in mind. How can Jesus be loving? How can Jesus be calling us to him? How can Jesus be forgiving and merciful and still judge and still come with passion and purpose and still hold people to expectations? How can he do all that, be both those things at once? The answer is because he is God and we are not. He determines what is right. He determines what is wrong. He determines what is acceptable to him and what is not. 
And when he comes, he ain't playing games. It says that his, his go back to this one. It says that it, his feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace. It's battle tested. It's tempered. It's pure. It's ready to fight. And it says that he held the seven stars in his hands. Seven stars in his right hand. Now we know the number seven, right? Means what? Perfect, complete, right? We're not, we don't, we're not gonna do 19 and 20 in this today, but if you remember, John does us a favor in verses 19 and 20 of this chapter. He interprets what the seven stars and the seven lampstands are about, right? The seven lampstands are about the seven churches he's about to talk about. And the seven stars are the angels, right? The angels of those churches. But he's holding them in his hand. The hand matters. Remember, we talked about the symbols. The hand matters. Why does it matter that it's in his hand, in his right hand? The right hand is the seat of righteousness. It's the seat of God's control. It's also the seat of judgment. To be in his right hand means that God is in charge of the cosmos. Keep that in mind. He's in charge of the cosmos. You look up and you see the stars at night and you count them by the, the tens or the hundreds or the thousands depending on where you are and how clear the sky is. God is in charge of all of that. God placed every one of them where he wanted them to be. Just as he's placed you where he wants you to be. And the story that he's a, about to unveil to John He's about to show him. John needs to understand that and own that, that God is in charge of it all or he will never make it through. Do you really believe that God is in charge of everything? God's got big shoulders. God can handle anything we throw at him because God is in charge of everything. Now, if we can really all embrace that, how much easier would your life be? If you could really embrace that God is in charge of everything. When you're sick, God is still in charge. When you're broke, God is still in charge. When you're angry, God is still in charge. When your relationship is busted, God is still in charge. When you're successful, God is still in charge. When all is well in your world, God is still in charge. We sang the song this morning, Blessed Be Your Name, right? In the land that is plentiful, in the streams where abundance flows, blessed be your name. But also blessed be your name in the desert place, in the road marked with suffering, where there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. 
God is in charge of everything. From the outset. And the picture that he's trying to paint for John and for us is that Jesus just isn't just an intermediary. He's not just a human priest. He is also the ancient of days. The one who was, who is, and is yet to come. He came here with a purpose. The first time he came to extend mercy and grace. He came here to atone for our sins, all that we've ever done or ever will do. He came to give us a chance to approach God through Him. We're reading in the book of Jude this morning with the youth. They're talking about how when God presents His children, or when Jesus presents His children to the Lord, He does it with great joy. And I made Caitlin Jackson feel really awkward because I was like, this, this, this is mine, right? This is, this is Jesus saying to the Lord, this is, this is my child. You've got to meet her. She's so amazing. I'm rejoicing that she has come to be with us. I'm rejoicing that she is, she is part of our family, part of who we are. I'm rejoicing that I get to spend eternity with her. And I want you to cheer with me. John's revelation is very clear. Okay? If, if you really do believe that he is our Lord and Savior, if you really do believe that he is in charge, then when you're tempted to fall at his feet like you were dead, like John says, then he will lay his right hand on you and say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of everything that's going on. Don't be afraid, as he told one church, of the suffering that lies ahead. Don't be afraid of how this is all going to end up because I am the first, I am the last, I am the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and forever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And if you are His, you have nothing to, be, nothing to fear. If you are not, my suggestion is you fix that right now. And again, I'm not usually that guy, but my suggestion is you fix that right now. Because when it comes... You're not going to be able to plan it. You're not going to be able to fix a few more things. And I want to be really clear. Following Jesus isn't about being good or bad because ain't none of us perfect. It's about being humble or proud. It's about recognizing that there is only one God. His name is Jesus. And he's going to make the world right. And the place we want to be is on his side. Amen? amen. And amen.